Amen. I invite you to take your copy of Scripture this morning and turn to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. And uh, if you're uh, a guest with us this morning and haven't been with us, uh, we are in a series in the Gospel of Mark and uh, have been for some time and will be for a while. Uh, And uh, this morning we're going to be looking at the latter part of chapter 5, verses 21 to 43. Uh, If you didn't bring your Bible this morning, encourage you to look in the chair in front of you. And in one of the chairs in front of you, underneath the chair, you should find one. Uh, The passage is on 840 and 841. And uh, you can turn there and we'll be referring back to the passage a number of times during the service. And so that'll help you to follow along. Uh, But I'm going to be in reading for us in Mark chapter 5, uh, verse 21 and read through to the end of the chapter. Hear the word of the Lord. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat on the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd, and touched his garment. For she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well." And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? He looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James, They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother by the hand. And um, I'm sorry, and they laughed at him, but he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was, taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this, and told them to give her something to eat. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, okay? Father, we thank you for your word. And uh, we come before you again, Lord, as we do every week, and we, we ask and we pray that you would accompany your word by the power of your spirit. We pray, Father, that you would give us wisdom and insight. We pray, Father, that what we hear and what we know to be true 
uh, as revealed by your word, would not just be knowledge in our heads, but, Father, by your grace, you would apply it to our hearts. And, Father, we pray that we would become a people increasingly amazed by Jesus, and our lives would be changed as a result. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. In our text this morning, Mark records for us two miracles that Jesus performed. And uh, I think it's helpful initially here to say something about miracles because I know that some would disregard this text right away because they would say that miracles are an impossibility. And therefore this story, because it contains a record of miracles in it, must necessarily be legend and not history. And so I want to say just, we could spend a good bit of time responding to that, um, that claim, but I just want to say a few things in, in response to that, and it'll be a little bit more philosophical, but I hope that it helps. For folks that would say miracles are an impossibility and, and therefore this account must be legend, um, we would naturally ask the question, well, why do you believe that miracles are an impossibility? And typically the response would be because miracles are inconsistent with science, right? Now, it is true, there's an important distinction to be made here, it is true that miracles fall outside the realm of science, but that does not necessarily mean that therefore miracles are contrary or inconsistent with science. And that's an important distinction to make. You know, there are a lot of other realms as we think about reality that fall outside of uh, the realm, or, or a lot of other things as we think about reality that fall outside of the realm of science. For example, morality falls outside of the realm of science. Now, science cannot answer the question, is it wrong or is it right to murder someone? Science is not able to answer the question, is it wrong or right to steal Those things fall outside of the realm of science. And miracles as well fall outside of the realm of science, but that does not necessarily mean they are contrary to science. So if we presuppose the existence of God, which most people do, then miracles, I think we have to say, by default, by necessity, are not an impossibility. Neither are they necessarily inconsistent with science. Now, now, you might have heard, and, and some people would, would say, well, they are inconsistent with science if you define miracles in this way. And some have defined miracles as a violation of natural laws. So there are certain natural laws, things work a certain way, we see this consistently, and they happen over and over again. And so a miracle is something where that law is broken. It's a violation of natural laws. But understand that many Christians would object to that definition of miracles. A Christian apologist oftentimes would reject to that definition of miracles. So, for example, J.P. Morgan, a Christian apologist, has this to say, and I think this is very helpful. He writes, The laws of nature are the way we describe how the world usually works. If someone drops an apple, it falls to the floor. That we call gravity. However, if someone were to drop an apple, and I were to reach over and grab it before it hit the ground, I would not be overturning the law of gravity. I would simply be intervening. In a similar way, God is able to reach into the world that he created by performing a miracle. He isn't contravening or overturning the laws of nature. He's simply intervening. 
And so do you see that if we presuppose the existence of God, and we don't have time this morning to go into various arguments or rationale for the existence of God, but if you do presuppose the existence of a divine being, then miracles are possible. Not because we deny science or because um, we deny natural law, but because we acknowledge the existence of another all-powerful being who is able to act and intervene in the natural world. Well, if we assume that miracles are possible in Jesus, we see over and over again recorded in the Gospels as performing miracles, then naturally we want to ask the question, well, why? Why did Jesus perform miracles? And one of the things I want us to see this morning, and this is where we're going to spend our time and focus, is that miracles in the ministry of Jesus, one, they weren't magic tricks, but on the other hand, they were not a sideshow. Rather, miracles had a very specific purpose and intention. Miracles in the ministry of Jesus were divine interventions specifically uh, designed to reveal to us who God is. I want us to see that this morning as we look at these two miracles. In in looking at these two miracles, we will see in Mark chapter 5 that these two miracles teach us about Jesus' authority, about Jesus' gospel, about Jesus' kingdom, and about Jesus' values. Okay, So these two miracles teach us about Jesus' authority, his gospel, his kingdom, and his values. First of all, consider that these miracles teach us about Jesus' authority. Now, in in our series in in the Gospel of Mark, we recognize that we've come into a section here in the Gospel of Mark in which... Mark is communicating to us and demonstrating to us Jesus' all-sufficient power and authority. He is the great king who has come. And so Mark is giving us a number of examples of how Jesus demonstrated his authority while he was on earth. So at the end of chapter 4, you might remember, we saw Jesus' authority over nature when he speaks and the wind and the sea are calmed by his command. And so Jesus possesses all authority over nature. And then last week we came into chapter 5. And at the beginning of chapter 5, what we see is Jesus' authority over demons. As he delivered the demoniac from the oppression of unclean spirits. And so we saw Jesus' authority over demons. This week, as we look at the latter part of chapter 5, we see Jesus' authority over sickness and death. So we'll see on the one hand his authority over sickness as he heals the woman with the issue of blood. And then we see his authority over death as he raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. Now in in Mark communicating to us Jesus' authority in these two realms over sickness and death, he highlights the ease with which Jesus reverses the negative effects of chronic disease and... uh, and his ability to raise a girl from the dead. So, so, so notice the ease with which Jesus does this. Consider the woman's condition. In chapter 5, verse 25, we read that she had a discharge of blood. So this was obviously a menstrual issue that this woman had. It was uh, severe. It was serious. Uh, you see there in verse 25 that this had been a long trial. It had uh, occurred in her life for 12 years. It was painful, you see in verse 26, so that she had suffered much with this condition. There was no cure for it, so you see there in verse 26 as well that many physicians had attended to her, but there was no cure. And it was deteriorating, so in verse 26 we also see that it was not getting better, but instead 
Uh, um, even though the physicians were trying to care for her, instead it was getting worse. Now, this is a serious condition. It's a chronic condition. In verse 26, we read, after touching Jesus, you notice the word there in verse 26, immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Immediately. Touch Jesus, immediately it's gone. Then consider Jairus' daughter. In chapter 5, verse 23, we read that she is at the point of death. So that's at the beginning of the narrative. And then we get further along in the narrative. In chapter 5, verse 35, we read that she is, in fact, dead. Then you skip down to verse 21. Jesus takes her by the hand. Again, he touches the individual, right? He takes her by the hand. He gently speaks to her two words, Talitha kumi, which is little girl, arise, and with two words, in verse 42, you see the word again, immediately the girl got up and began walking. So with Jesus' spoken word and with Jesus' touch, immediately sickness is reversed, healed, and the dead are raised. This is the nature of the authority of Jesus Christ. Not only does Mark highlight the ease with which Jesus accomplishes these things, but he also highlights Jesus' authority by laying out the sequence of these events. The the order in which these events are laid out highlight Jesus' authority. So you'll notice in the passage, and we'll see this further along as well, Mark has included and intertwined these two accounts for a reason. He wants us to consider them together. And you notice that first in the, in the narrative, uh, Jesus, or we're introduced to Jairus, right? Whose daughter is at the point of death. So we're introduced to Jairus and, and his daughter, first of all, in the narrative. Then we're introduced to this woman who has the issue of blood. And as Jesus is on the way to attend to the young girl who is at the point of death, the woman touches him and she is healed. And what does Jesus do next? It's perplexing, all right? Because in verse 30, you see, And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And the disciples get aggravated, right? The disciples are like, You see all these people around us. You see this great crowd. How can you say who touched you? I mean, how are we supposed to identify who touched you in the midst of all these people? And the woman comes forward and she says, well, Jesus, I touched you. And then Jesus begins to have this conversation with her and minister to her. And she explains to Jesus what happened. And and, and so all this time is elapsing. And can you imagine what Jairus is thinking while all this is taking place? Jesus is lollygagging, right? What is he doing? Jairus' daughter is at the brink of death. And then what he feared most happens in verse 35. While he was still speaking, they came, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Now listen, from a medical standpoint, what you have here in these two accounts, and they're laid out in this way, intertwined together, what you have here is a chronic condition, a chronic problem, And you have an acute problem. The woman has a chronic problem of hemorrhaging. It's serious, it's painful, but it is not fatal. The man, on the other hand, Jairus, he has a daughter 
who is at the brink of death. It is, it is fatal. It is critical. And notice, Jesus attends to the woman first. Now, this doesn't make sense. In fact, it, even more than not making sense, today it would be malpractice, right? You, you attend to the, to the daughter who is about to die first, not to the woman who has the chronic condition. And what is Jesus doing here in, in, in And what is Mark doing in laying this out for us in this way? No doubt Jairus' faith was being tested. But in addition to that, this delay is intended to reveal that for Jesus, it is no more difficult for him to raise the dead than it is for him to heal a chronic condition. In Jesus' realm, right, he does not have to give more attention or preference to one as opposed to the other. Because the abilities of this physician are limitless. He holds all authority over sickness and death. And so whether he tends to the one or to the other, it matters little. He is able to heal both with equal ease. And so these two miracles are intended to reveal to us Jesus' authority. Not only do these miracles teach us about Jesus' authority, though. Second, these miracles teach us about Jesus' salvation, his salvation. Now, this is something important to understand when we come to miracles in the gospel. Is that many times, miracles in the gospel are intended to be pictures of the spiritual salvation that God offers us in Christ. Okay, so we see this in a number of occasions here. Uh, the way this works is that the woman's issue with blood, I think, parallels the chronic disease of sin that resides within our own souls. We can't get cured from it. We, we, we try different things. It, we can't be set free. Not only that, but the death of Jairus' daughter is a parallel to our own spiritual condition outside of Christ. Paul says that our sins are so, our souls are so terribly wrecked by sin that we are dead in our sins and in our trespasses. But here's the good news of the gospel. And it's pictured in these two miracles that Jesus possesses the power to cure us from the sickness in our own hearts and to raise our dead souls and to save us. Now, in particular, though, as we think about these miracles being pictures of the salvation that God offers us in Christ, I want us to focus on this theme of unclean and clean. And it really, it permeates chapter 5. In these miracles, Jesus reveals to us that he is able to make the unclean clean. So, so note, think about this. According to the purification laws of Israel, a woman was considered unclean during her monthly period. In fact, anyone who came in contact with her during her menstruation was also deemed unclean until that evening and they were required to wash. So because of this woman's condition, she lived in a perpetual state of being ceremonially unclean. In addition, Jairus' daughter would have been considered unclean because dead bodies in corpses, according to Israel's law, was also considered ceremonially unclean. And if one touched a corpse or a dead body and came in contact with a dead body, they also, there were certain purification rites that they had to follow before they would be made uh, clean again. 
Then if you go back earlier in the chapter, which we considered last week with the demoniac, uh, who Jesus cast out the evil spirits, it, it just reeks with uncleanness, okay? So if, if, if a Jew were to read the first 20 verses of chapter 5 in the account of the demoniac, he would probably want to take a bath, okay? There's so much uncleanness in the text. So when Jesus arrives, it's a Gentile region, which Gentiles were considered unclean. Not only that, but we see that the demoniac lived among the dead. If you remember the account, he lived among the dead in the caves and the tombs. The dead were considered to be unclean. He was cutting himself with stones, and so there would have been blood and pus and scabs, all considered unclean. Not only that, but just beside him, just over to the side of where the demoniac lived, there were herdsmen raising pigs. Swine were unclean, right? This was by far, or or, uh, far from being, a kosher place to be. But notice this, in chapter 5, each one of these situations where there is uncleanness, and a Jew who's reading the text would have, would have seen these things. In each case, Jesus is not contaminated by those unclean individuals touching him or being in his presence, but by the power of Jesus when he comes into their presence and when he touches them, he makes them clean. You see, the Old Testament laws always said if there's something unclean, you touch it, you're unclean. But Jesus comes into uncleanness, and when he touches it, the reverse happens. They become clean. Listen, my friends, in the gospel, we learn that Jesus is willing to risk getting dirty to save sinners. And we also learn in the gospel that one of, our, one of the consequences of our sin is guilt and shame and a sense of dirtiness, a sense of filthiness or uncleanness. But Jesus comes to make the dirty clean. And listen, my friends, if you go to Jesus this morning, he can wash away every sin. And in the place of the guilt and the shame and perhaps even the dirtiness and the uncleanliness that you feel, he will declare you clean and accepted. There's something else we see here as we think about these miracles teaching us about Jesus' salvation. We also learn that we experience the good news of Jesus' salvation through faith. Now, do you see the critical role that faith plays in these accounts? Now, you notice the woman's faith in verse 28. The woman with the issue of blood reasons, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. Now, that's faith, right? And we know it's faith because that's what Jesus calls it. So in verse 34, he commends her by saying, daughter, your faith has made you well. And then we see Jairus' faith as well. As he approaches Jesus in verse 23 and he says, Come and lay your hands on my daughter and she will be made well and live. And then once his daughter slips into death, Jesus speaks to Jairus and he says in verse 36, Do not fear, only believe. Believe. So faith plays a critical role, but a number of commentators have pointed out, and I think this is right, a number of commentators have pointed out that Faith does play a critical role for the woman and for Jairus, but the faith of the woman and the faith of Jairus are less than perfect. So if you consider the faith of the woman, it's almost kind of quasi-superstitious. If I touch his garment, 
I will be made well. And she doesn't seem to have any particular interest in Christ either. Any particular interest in Christ as a person. She wants a healing and then she is content once she touches his garment to scatter off into anonymity. She doesn't want to encounter Jesus in the sense of talking to him, knowing him. She wants a healing. Jairus seems to be similar. There's no evidence that he has a particular interest in knowing who Jesus is or following him or serving him. He's not coming to Jesus and saying, I want to be your disciple, right? His daughter's sick. He wants his daughter to be made well. He wants a miracle from Jesus. There's nothing wrong with coming to Jesus if you need a miracle, right? But if that's all you want from Jesus, then that shows a deficiency in faith. And on both occasions, even though their faith was not perfect or fully mature, we see that faith was present in Christ, in His mercy, and in His grace, He honored their faith. R.C. Sproul, who's a well-known Christian theologian, I heard him a while back speak of his own conversion to Christianity. And uh, he, he tells the story about how one night as a college student, I, I believe he was in the student center of the college that he attended, and a young man came to him and shared the gospel with him. And a uh, young man shared the gospel with him and one of his friends and actually shared the gospel with him from a passage from Ecclesiastes. And uh, R.C. Sproul at that time didn't know very much about the Bible or the Christian faith. And he kind of jokes that he's probably the only person he knows who's been converted from a passage in Ecclesiastes. Um, But he remembers as this individual was sharing the gospel with him, being struck by his own sin and by his own guilt. And so later that night, he left the student center and he went back to his dorm room and he asked Christ to forgive him and to save him. Uh, Recalling that event, looking back on that night, he says he admits that there was a lot he did not understand about the Christian faith. He says, I couldn't explain the Trinity to you. I couldn't have given you a clear definition of justification by faith or I couldn't explain to you the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. Those things would come later for him. But he heard the gospel and in hearing the gospel, he heard that he was a sinner and that there was salvation through Jesus Christ and he believed and trusted in Christ and Christ in that moment saved his soul. Listen, my friends, we're a church that values what the Bible teaches. We value doctrine and theology because we believe that it is good and beneficial for us to know who God is and to know who He is accurately. And it is true that there is theology that is so bad that it can damn you. But it is also true that we are not saved by our theology, but we are saved through faith in Jesus. And listen, my friends, and this is, this is showing, so encourage you. We are not saved by the greatness of our faith. But we are saved by the greatness of the Christ in whom we place our faith. We realize when we come to Christ that we are sinners and we cannot save ourselves. And, and we realize that his sacrifice and what he has accomplished is great and perfect and sufficient. And it's not the greatness of our faith that we place in him that saves us. But it's the greatness of who he is and what he has accomplished in his redemption that saves us. Listen, my friends, if you're here this morning and God is calling you. 
God is moving in your life, but you fear that your faith is too ignorant, or you fear that your faith is too weak, let me admonish you to go to Christ. Go to Christ. No matter how weak your faith may be, no matter what you might think of your faith, go to Him. Ask Him for more. Ask Him to inform your faith and to grow your faith. But go to Him and place whatever faith you have in Christ. Trust Him. Believe in Him. And He will save you. Not because your faith is great, but because He is a great Savior. The third thing that we see here in these miracles, what they teach us, they teach us about Jesus' authority, they teach us about Jesus' salvation, but they also teach us about Jesus' kingdom. So in Mark's gospel, the first thing that Jesus says when he comes on the scene, recorded in Mark's gospel, is repent. I'm sorry, he does say that, but first he says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. So there it is. It's Mark 1.15. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, and believe the gospel. And so these miracles teach us about Jesus' kingdom. It, it is true, as we've just seen, that the miracles are a picture of the spiritual salvation that God offers us in Christ. But it's also true that Jesus' miracles are an expression of His coming kingdom. Now I want to explain what that means. Jesus' kingdom, we learn from the scriptures, is both spiritual and physical. And so Jesus does come to save our souls, right? We've been talking about that. But he also came and has come to restore all creation. Physical creation. The, future, the promise of the kingdom, the future promise of the kingdom, is that one day Jesus will not only save our souls, but he will also restore us physically and save us from death. And listen, in the miracles of Jesus, one of the things that's happening is that we are getting a taste of the coming kingdom of Jesus. In the miracles of Jesus, Jesus is reversing the effects of sin upon creation and he is making all things new. Let me give you a couple of examples of this. In Luke chapter 10 verses 8 to 10, Jesus is giving his disciples instruction and he says, whenever you go into a town and they receive you, heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. So how, how are they to know that the kingdom of God has come? At least in part, we could say other things, but at least in part, the sick are being healed. The, the effect of sin upon the physical body in which we experience sickness and disease is being reversed by the power of Jesus. When that happens, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Or in Luke chapter 11, verse 20, Jesus says, But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So if, if those who are tormented by demonic spirits are being set free by the power of Jesus, then that's an expression of the kingdom of God coming. This is what it will be like, we could say it this way, this is what it would be like to live under the rule and reign of King Jesus. 
Russell Moore, a Christian theologian, writes this, quote, Everywhere Jesus went, he announced the kingdom was on its way, and he demonstrated it by turning back the curse in all its forms. Jesus seemed completely unperturbed by the evil spirits, by the natural order, by biological decay. They all turned back at the sound of his voice. There's a Bible that I like to read to our boys. Uh, at night, we read a Bible story before we go to bed. One of the Bibles that we use, and we give this to, a number of, uh, to our parents when they come to dedicate their children to the Lord. It's the Jesus Storybook Bible. And one of the ways that the Jesus Storybook Bible puts it, and I like this, is that when Jesus came, or in Jesus, God was making all the sad things come untrue. Isn't that good? God was making all the sad things come untrue. And when Jesus comes in the power of his kingdom, that's what's happening. Jesus is reversing the effects of sin. He's restoring all things. He's making it new. And the coming of the kingdom includes universal restoration. Jesus will one day, when he comes in the fullness of his kingdom, conquer demonic forces, eradicate all sickness and disease, destroy death, and renew creation. And so the miracles of Jesus as we see this should lead us to say, this is what it's like to live in the kingdom of Jesus. Jesus is making all things new. This is the good life. The good life under the rule and reign of King Jesus. Listen, my friends, some of you deal with chronic conditions, with sickness. You know the pain and the suffering and the grief of death because those who are close to you have died. And in the miracles of Jesus, it's as though we're getting a down payment, a guarantee that Jesus' promises that he will make all things new will in fact come to pass. This is what it will be like. This is just a taste of what it will be like. When I, the king, will rule and reign and I will make all things new. And so the miracles of Jesus should cause us to long for the coming rule and reign of our King. Fourth and finally, we see that these miracles teach us about Jesus' values. They teach us about Jesus' values. Now, I said before that Mark intentionally weaves these two stories together, and he wants us to consider them together. And uh, when you compare Jairus and the woman you realize that they were two very different people. And in every way, Jairus seems to have the advantage. Okay? So notice that uh, Jairus was a male, and, the wo- and obviously the woman was a female, right? And uh, in that culture, Jairus takes the advantage. Jairus was a ruler of the synagogue, and so he was probably well-known, thought of, He attended worship, obviously, on a regular basis. The woman was ceremonially unclean and unable to attend worship. Jairus was wealthy. The woman was poor. She had spent all her money trying to get relief from her condition. Jairus enjoyed status and position in the community, but this woman had been marginalized. And then if you even consider the way in which they approach Jesus. So that's kind of who they are, right? But even if you consider the way in which they approach Jesus, Jairus still seems to have every advantage. Jairus comes first. 
He's first in line, right? I mean, kids understand that concept. He's there first. The woman comes second. Not only that, but as we considered before, Jairus' problem is critical. It's a matter of life and death. His daughter may die. The woman's problem is lamentable, but not nearly as serious. And what is Jesus' response? He gives preference to the woman. He gives full attention in that moment to this woman, pauses, ministers to her, and makes Jairus, the one who's well-known and wealthy and respected and thought, thought well of in the community, makes him wait in the hour of his greatest need. In other words, Jesus reverses the values of this world. And the grace of Jesus reverses the values of this world. This is how it happens. What we see and what we learn in the gospel is that grace is utterly undeserved. No one gets to the front of the line by merit or ethnicity or status or money or class. We all come to Jesus as beggars and so no one gets to the front of the line by their own merit. And therefore, Jesus makes the religious leader wait while he ministers to the poor and unclean woman. And this is throughout the Gospels, over and over again, different examples, same truth. And here's the thing, if we get grace, if the Gospel gets deep into us, then it also will change and transform our values because as we realize that everything we have received by God through Christ is by grace and undeserved, then we will move towards the undeserving in a different way. Jesus says in Luke chapter 14, verses 12 to 13, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors Why? This is not the way we reason. Because they might invite you back. That's what he says. Lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind. And then you will be blessed. John Newton, who was... Uh, The slave trader who was converted by God's grace and mercy and then wrote the hymn, Amazing Grace, he said this in reference to this passage. One would almost think that Luke 14, 12 to 14 was not considered part of God's word, nor has any part of Jesus' teaching, having been neglected so much by his own people. I do not think it is unlawful to entertain our friends, but if these words do not teach us that it is, in some respects, is our duty to give a preference to the poor, I am at loss to understand what they mean. Let me ask you, has, and I have to ask myself this question, and this is something that, that I'm wrestling with, is has, has the grace of Christ affected you so much that it's transforming and changing your values in such a way that you see Jesus is interacting with people here? Have you been so struck by the reality that you brought nothing to Jesus and received everything for free and by grace that you are drawn to the poor 
and to generously give and joyfully give to others. Has the gospel so affected you that you move towards others and minister to others who may not be able to give you anything in return? You see the values of Jesus demonstrated in these miracles. Jesus turns everything upside down because everything is by grace. My friends, as we close this morning, as we've considered that these miracles teach us about Jesus' authority and it teaches about Jesus' kingdom and His grace or salvation and His values, if you're here this morning and you feel some need for Jesus. Maybe, uh, maybe you've never trusted in Christ for the first time. Or maybe you've been trusting in Christ for years, but you're just overwhelmed by your own sin, or, or by your own inadequacies, or by trials or difficulties in your life. I want to admonish you as we close now and go to prayer. Consider this account. Consider how welcoming the Lord Jesus is. And how He welcomes those who come to Him desperate and in need. And go to Him now. Go to Him now. Let's pray. Father, in these moments, as we've considered these two parables, and, or these two miracles, and all that they reveal to us about Jesus and his kingdom and who you are. Father, we we have learned and we see that you are, through these miracles, inviting us to Jesus. Father, I pray that in each one of our souls we would feel that pull. Lord, I pray that for none of us would any, any hindrance, any obstacle, anything that's keeping us from coming to Jesus, that by your grace you would remove it. And Lord, I pray now that we would run to Christ. I thank you for how welcoming, how receiving he is to all those who are desperate, who are needy, who are humble, who recognize that they have nothing to give, but only come to receive his grace. Thank you for the grace that you offer us in Christ. Thank you that it's so free. Lord, I pray in particular as well for those who that maybe never trusted in Christ, that they would realize that Christ has done on the cross in paying for their sins what they could never do. And that they would run to Him and trust Him for the forgiveness of sins. And it's through Jesus Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.